We're in 1 Samuel 25 this morning. We're going to read a lot of Bible today. And so I'm not going to waste time with an introduction except to say this is God's holy word and it demands our attention. Amen. 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. This is a very brief memorial for such an important man whom we've been studying, Um, but this is all the writer gives us about Samuel's death, and the story then moves on. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, And there was a man in my own whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the the name of the man was Nabal. Nabal means fool. It's also Laban spelled backwards in Hebrew and in English. And there are actually some similarities between this story and the story of Laban and Jacob. You can check that out later. It says, And the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So Abigail is clearly the better half in this relationship. She's the Also the most important character in this story. Verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And so David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to you. To all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast today. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David makes a very simple request. His men have provided protection for Nabal's servants. In return, he is respectfully asking for some food. And he says, whatever you have at hand is fine. Whatever you can spare. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. In other words, he's calling David a runaway slave. Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat 
that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men from whom, who come from where I do not know. So in Hebrew, Nabal uses somehow in that short sentence eight personal pronouns in one sentence. I, I, my, my. It reminds me of a children's book that we used to read to our kids called The Minosaur. It's about a dinosaur who won't share with the other dinosaurs because he believes that everything belongs to him. And over and over he roars, Mine, mine, mine. Foolish, right? And that's the effect that verse 11 is meant to have. Nabal is a greedy, foolish minosaur. Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. It's pretty obvious what David is planning to do, right? He's on his way to open up a 55-gallon drum of vengeance on Nabal. And that seems justified, but don't forget what happened in the last chapter. Remember what David said to Saul? This is chapter 24. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Now this is a man who's been trying to kill him. Not someone who just denied him food. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. And I love this because the Bible always reminds us these heroes, David included, are refreshingly human. What happened to loving your enemies, David? What happened to vengeance belongs to the Lord, David? David is is being inconsistent and he's being impetuous, which is something that I think we're all guilty of. And it's sort of refreshing. Some days we get it right, other days we get it very wrong. David is getting it wrong. But thank God for Abigail. Verse 14. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. I just love that. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves 
two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, he should have stopped there, more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And this sounds out of character, right? Sounds like Saul. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Same words from last chapter. Remember how David fell on his face and bowed low to the ground before Saul? Same words. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. <laughs> and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause 
or from my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. I know that's a lot. I really wanted to read it all because I wanted you to see how brilliant this speech is. She really is a discerning and beautiful woman. In many ways, it's a much better speech than the one David made to Saul. It's so full of personal details and appeals. I mean, I love that that she uses the sling to really get David's attention. It's also rich with really, really good theological language. She's telling David that if he does this, blood will be on his hands. This is not the kind of king you should be, David. Do not try to save with your own hands. Remember all this talk about hands still? Don't try to work salvation yourself. Let the Lord handle this. Let Him handle it all. You see, Abigail really is. She's the mercy of God. Ralph Davis writes, Abigail is the Lord's stop sign mercifully placed in David's path. Let's finish the story. Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. He said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. So this is the message of the text. Sometimes God graciously stops us from doing something foolish. He doesn't allow us to be as bad as our hearts want us to be. But it's really, really important for us to see what was in David's heart. Look at what he wanted to do. Nabal was the fool. He's the one responsible for rejecting David. But David was planning to kill every male in town. And if God had not been merciful, that's what David would have done. And we've studied enough of these stories now 
to know that's not, that's not what God would have had him do. Instead, Abigail stands in the gap. David backs off. Ten days later, God killed Nabal with a heart attack. Right after Abigail told him (laughs) what she did. So she was right. He took care of it. David learns a lesson. Seems obvious that he understands what he's supposed to learn. Seems obvious to me that David is a much better king than Saul. But we need to remember that David is also just a man. He's going to make a lot of mistakes. At the end of this chapter, we're told that he takes Abigail and some other woman as wives. And before you excuse that, because she's a great woman, (laughs) I get it, but he was already married. And David is going to take a lot of wives for himself. And that's going to become a major problem for the kingdom. As the story unfolds, we will learn that the kingdom of Israel is not safe in anyone's hands except God's. Jesus is the only king who gets it completely right. So that's the kind of the big picture. But what are we supposed to do with this story, right? How can we bring it home with us today? I think first, very simply, we just need to look for God's mercy in our lives. We need to look for these examples of God being merciful to us. Sometimes God lets us experience the failure of our sins, right? But it's usually not as bad as it could be. You know, we tell our kids all the time, God's mercies are new each morning. Do you look for that? Do you take time to reflect on your daily life and look for those moments when God kept you from self-destructing, from doing something foolish, or you did something foolish and it wasn't as bad as it should have been? I remember years ago, I really, really sinned against a very close friend of mine. I essentially betrayed him. And it should have ended our relationship. But this friend um, decided to show me mercy. And it humbled me in a way that I really had never experienced. And the beauty of it is we're actually much closer now than we were before. And I understand now looking back on it that really that was God showing mercy because there should have been much greater consequences for what I did. But for moments like that to make a significant difference in our lives, we have to be willing to look in the mirror and dig deep. What was in my heart to do? What would I do if no one found out 
if there were no consequences, what's in my heart? And what should be the consequences for what's in my heart? Not just what I actually did, but what I wanted to do. And guys, this is hard work, but the grace and mercy of God become more beautiful to us against the backdrop of that stuff. When you take the time to look and see what was in my heart to do and what did God protect me from, how has He been merciful to me? And we don't know this for sure, but I strongly suspect that David wrote Psalm 14 in response to this story. And I want you to listen to the words of the psalm. Just the first half. It says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does he find? Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now whether he wrote about this or not, David is recognizing in this psalm that the impulse of his heart is to act like God doesn't exist. The impulse of his heart is to do evil. Not to seek God. Not to do good. And he says that everyone suffers from this problem, not just Nabal. And by the way, that's actually the word in Hebrew for fool in verse 1. Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. But David is including himself among the fools. And the Apostle Paul uses this psalm in Romans 3 to explain to new Christians the depravity of mankind and what exactly Jesus had to save us from. He says that no one is righteous apart from Christ. And he writes these words, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Every sin we indulge, every failure, every worthless thought, every foolish impulse of our hearts, is an opportunity to remember the mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ. And part of that impulse, if you listen to Abigail's speech, that impulse is to try and save ourselves from it by our own hands. Did you hear her saying that? That we can somehow work salvation for ourselves 
And that's the most foolish thing about us. That we think we can pull, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And I see this written all over that story. Redemption is a gift we receive. We're on the way to folly. And God stops us in our tracks and says, nope, (laughs) turn around, go the other way. And brothers and sisters, we don't really move on from this. The Christian life begins with and flourishes in repentance and faith. Daily repentance and faith. What is in my heart today? What do I deserve today? It's easy for us who believe in grace in the gospel to, to think as though it's like this door that I walked into and it's years in the past. And, and yeah, I believe in Jesus, right? But then we start acting like it's up to us. As if the mercy of God is not the floor that we're standing on right now. Every day, what is in my heart? What do I deserve? Where would I be if not for Christ? Hell. The answer is hell. So may God give us the grace to believe that and to turn to Christ for the first time, and then every day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for putting up a stop sign that looked like a cross where Jesus assumed the guilt for something that he had not done, just as our sister Abigail tried to assume the guilt for her husband's folly. And we rejoice that if that is true of us, if we are found forgiven in Christ, there's nothing that can undo it. There's nothing we can do to add to it. And it will not be taken away. If you begin that work, you will finish it. And so we stand in your presence forgiven. We stand justified. We are not to stay in shame and guilt. We are to acknowledge our failures. We are to look at our hearts and then repent and then rejoice. And so, Father, I pray as we conclude worship that You would restore the joy of our salvation. Though we have been the fools who at times have said, there is no God And if we haven't said it, we've acted like it. Though that is who we are in some sense, we are also in Christ forgiven. And I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Let's stand and pray.